all and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I'm your host Danny, and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello, hello, hello. The premise of our show is simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. So that'd be anything from 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other. Today we have uh, sci-fi, which we yeah. yeah we've kind of touched in previous episodes, but we've never actually fully immersed ourselves in. And I'm happy to I was happy to find that you you hadn't seen Metropolis 1927, so um, it was it was a great opportunity for us to to have it on the podcast. So before I introduce the film, well, as a film historian, I, I love stories about found films that were considered lost, especially from, from the silent era. So bear with me on this because there's a bit of history coming up. So for decades, all that survived of Metropolis was an incomplete original negative, um, copies of shortened, re-edited foreign release prints. Over a quarter of the film was believed lost. However, in July 2008, film historian and collector Fernando Martin Peña discovered a 16mm dupe negative copy of this film at uh, Buenos Aires Cinema Museum. Up, up until then, all that was known was that an original copy, full-length 35mm, had been sent to Argentina in 1928. The last officially documented screening of this version had occurred in 1950s, so since then it was considered lost. So since 35mm film was more hazardous to keep in those days, because the nitrate inside the negative could sometimes ignite, preservers would often make a 16mm negative copy of the original because that was easier to store. So what prompted the discovery was that Peña remembered stories from Argentinian movie operators claiming to have screened a version of Metropolis that was over two hours long in the 1980s. So this version had probably been a part of a private collection that was later donated to the museum. After finally getting permission to search the museum archives, um, he found the surviving 16mm copy. Examining the reels, the, the cinema experts realized that the copy had a relatively poor picture quality, mainly because it had also copied all the damage from the original 35mm, um, which had been worn from years of use. So the copying process also meant that some parts of the frame had been lost, which is why the film is sometimes seen with slightly smaller um, print. Nevertheless, the reels contained almost all of the previous missing sequences, around two to twenty-five uh, minutes worth of footage, which is yeah, almost unbelievable. So this is kind of the film that we've we've analysed in this podcast, the full version available at BFI. So here's a synopsis. 
In a futuristic city, sharply divided between the working class and the city planners, the son of, a, of the city's mastermind falls in love with a working class prophet who predicts the coming of a savior to mediate their differences. So, Nick, what did you think of Metropolis? Um, thank you for the, that, you know, the, the history lesson that was, you know, really interesting. It's, it's a story that, um, you know, I, I knew fragments of, I knew that, you know, part of the, you know, the film had kind of been rediscovered in Argentina. Um, and it, you know, like you said, it's, it's, they're really cool stories to hear. I love these um, stories. Yeah. They, they don't, they don't happen that often. So when, when they do happen, it's like. You know, and then and it happens with Metropolis, which is you know, like this such a big film, like it's such a huge, huge, huge film. It's a very important film in yeah. the history of cinema, I think. So, so with it being a very important film, and obviously like a touchstone of science fiction cinema, you know, it's it's quite unforgivable that it's taken me this long to actually finally get round to watching it. Um, you know, I actually do kind of pride myself on the amount of science fiction cinema I kind of consume and watch and, and, you know, there's some, you know, really weird films that people may not have heard of that I've seen and, and, you know, this, this is just kind of one of those huge blind spots, you know, it's like the gap in this. It's like the almost like the final jigsaw puzzle in in this thing of science fiction, you know, in science fiction cinema, in 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 my own thing. So, you know, I it was this was just kind of a film that I just didn't kind of get just didn't get round to. I, I didn't I just didn't feel like I kind of set aside the two and a half hours, you know, to watch this silent movie where you know because it's had such a huge impact on science fiction cinema that. I kind of knew where it, what was going to happen anyway, just purely through osmosis. And, you know, because, you know, like I said, it's got this influence on pretty much everything. It's hard I... to escape it. It is. Yeah. And, you know, it has it has such an influence on, on pretty much, you know, everything I love in, in science fiction cinema, you know, in, including the, the film that we're going to be talking about in a bit. So with all that in mind, I was I was so wrong. I did not know what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um the, the the i did not expect any of this the, the you know like that it it was just truly phenomenal um yeah no i i'm completely blown away by it honestly and, and obviously that's kind of what to expect you know this is a classic of cinema it's you know it's like one of the touchstones of cinema and it, it, it and it's amazing it's like sitting down to watch lawrence of arabia for the first time and being like <laughs> that's a good comparison you know you you know you're kind of like oh right oh okay you know what i mean it's like they're, 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 they're these these touchstones of cinema that that you know they they are that for that reason there is a reason why are that they're, they're that and you know you shouldn't be so surprised that they're phenomenal um you know you know like uh, the godfather um oh, my mind's gone blank for some reason um but you, you know what i mean like, i know, you, you yeah. know two, lord two, of the rings 2000, type thing lord, 2001 of space odyssey being i think being perhaps like the closest in terms of science fiction influence um i think to this yeah. Um, I think pro I think probably the best place to start um, is the performances. I think 
Um, so we've discussed silent films in the past, a, a big parade we had in the past, and um, it was uh, Buster Keaton. We had two Buster Keaton films, which are uh, silent movies, and we had the the Charlie Chaplin film, The Kid. Um, so we, you know, we have discussed silent movies on on the podcast. Um, I I spoke in. I remember speaking in in the big parade about how um like blown away i was by how how kind of amazing like silent cinema can be you know that this is assumption there's this kind of assumption that you know and it's a common misconception that without sound you know cinema is just it's not cinema um but forgetting the fact that sound kind of exists you know, sound didn't exist in film for for quite a long period of time. If if you look at the history of cinema, um, you know, and obviously silent film actors, you know, they they need to be physically and visually expressive. That's why when we spoke about Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, that you know that they they were able to kind of capitalize on on that. Um, yeah, so. I I was I was I was kind of guilty of all that you know that kind of thinking in the past that you know without sound you know how good can you know a performance be and this film is is honestly I think the you know the perfect example of where you know that doesn't matter um I think uh Gustav I'm going to butcher some some names now so uh, Gustav Froelich um I even took German for five years, so I don't know why I'm struggling with this. Um, he is, um, I think he's amazing as the lead as Freda. Um, I think he's um, he's really compelling, heroic, uh, he's righteous. He's kind of got this really, really great gravitas to his performance. Um, I thought uh, Rotwang, um, you know, the crazy scientist played by uh, Rudolf klein um, he almost, you know, stole the film and everything, he, you know, <laughs> when he came up. You know, he's like the original mad scientist on film. Yes. You know, I, I saw him and I was like, I can see where Gene Wilder got his look from for, <laughs> you know, young Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> you know, and his kind of, the, the, the hair, you know, Doc you Brown from Back to the Future. Frankenstein, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, I need to get the, that pronunciation correctly. <laughs> um, but the film, the film belongs to to Bridget Helm. Um, if anybody has seen my Twitter uh, feed, uh, <laughs> you had seen that I had said that. Why did no one tell me Bridget Helm was, you know, so amazing in this? Um, I I was honestly completely captivated by her performance. Um, as a dual performance, I mean, we've we've spoken in the past about one in already. Um, it was uh, Stolen it Life, da- wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Betty Davis. Stolen Life, where we had Betty Davis's two Betty Davises, and you know, I kind of complained a little bit that it wasn't really anything there. Um, but then this, like, oh, incredible as as the kind, good, um, motherly uh, Maria. You know, she speaks of a of a truth, and she really does look as pure as her character is meant to be. You know, the the plot synopsis you had kind of said that she's kind of this prophet, and and 
Yeah. Um, and you can kind of exactly see how and why Freda kind of falls with her almost like when he sees her for the first time yeah. because she is un- unlike anything other, you know, the other women that are kind of he surrounded himself with. And then you have the um, machine mensch, Maria. Um, and she is. Like she's uh, you know, manipulative, <laughs> conniving, you know, evil, and you know, duplicitous, uh, and an incredibly powerful, and she's incredibly stunning, as you said. The the black um, around her eyes and I the way know. her eyes kind of pop and her body movements. I mean, um, <laughs> we had. You know, a few weeks ago, we we spoke at all that jazz. Um, Bob Fosse's kind of, you know, movements and the way uh, his dance, his dances, and, and his choreography kind of exaggerates these kind of jerked movements. Her movements in this film, uh, as as this machine Maria, is just incredible, um, and it's really really sexualized as well, and in, in a way that I was really not expecting. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's a sequence that you know exactly what I'm going to say next. There's a sequence where she is dancing and she's manipulating these rich men, and they're kind of like it edits edits the edit kind of goes between the the men looking at her kind of all you know grouped together, yes, <laughs> and then like her like dancing in like these weird poses, and like it is like this mesmerizing. It's so mesmerizing, and then the eyes kind of come together like this kaleidoscopic it's pretty much an uh, a shot from a, a sergio uh sergio eisenstein uh movie that you know the, the the shot of the eyes yes yes um it's it's out of an eisenstein film um yeah and i i honestly found myself gawking at her the way that the men do you know and <laughs> and i think it's really interesting that um that you know lang is kind of just He's commenting on on the art of looking in this, you know, film in 1927. There's already this kind of he's making you consider the art of looking or the the um male gaze. Male gaze. Yeah, that was the word I was looking for. Um yeah, no, she Bridget La, Bridget Helm is is honestly just actually stunning. Totally stunning. Um yeah, no, she was she was a, she was amazing. Um, the visuals um, I thought were, were, were obviously amazing. I mean, I, I honestly don't know how he did some of it. I really don't. Um, and especially you know considering the context in 1927, the light rings going around um, the machine. Uh, is is how did he do that? I don't know. I I mean I have some ideas. Um, and I'll 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 talk about them in a minute but i think there was a lot of um incredible special effects that were done on camera they were done they had to sort of there was no they had to do a lot of overexposure as well so they used to crank up the camera back and then redo it so, so that'd be where she's where she's transforming yes yes into yeah, yeah. the essences the essences being transferred over to, to the machine yeah so most of most of the edit most, most of the special effects were done on camera which was incredible if you think about it, how much work. So I think every scene had to be done like about three t- thirty times or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the 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 scale of the city is is really really incredible. 
Um, I spoke in the past, I think it was on this podcast, um, about, I saw an image in a, in a film textbook, um, way back when I was like 18, 19, and it kind of like captivated me in, it's one of the first images I think of when I think of silent cinema, and it's of, um, Babylon from, uh, D.W. Griffiths. It is W. Griffiths, Intolerance, isn't it? Yes, Intolerance, yeah. yes. And I saw this image of this Babylon and the massive sets. And as me thinking, how did they do that? You know, it looks like something out of a, a, a like a picture, like a drawing, like something out of somebody's like imagination on, on from pen to paper, not something that's been filmed. And there's there's images in this where I'm like, how did they do that? You know, the, the sheer scale of the city and the the way the tower of the tower of babel looks is is it, it's stunning it, it, it's, it it's another, another word for it and this is um it, i'm trying to think if this had the empire state building been built at that point i don't think it had had it had i it? think so no it hadn't no it hadn't so had... empire I, the, the reason why this bring this up is because the empire state building was you know the the highest you know tallest building in the in the world and for for a good few years and um you know it was built in 1930 i've just looked it up on google yeah so it's actually constructed from 1930 to 1931 so this film came out in 1927 and this you know the the sheer scale of the 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 tower of babel and and the the cityscape it, it just reminds me of you know looking in in like manhattan the skyscrapers and stuff and it's it's insane <laughs> um and honestly like it it is <coughs> it's it's funny that because the way i see this is like this is almost like because there's the the film doesn't specify a time like it doesn't say this is when this film takes I place think it's supposed I to think... take place in 2026 I think that, yeah, I read that that was the book, like the book that it's based off actually said it was 2026, yes. but don't, the film doesn't specify uh, a, a date, which I think is really, really clever because, you know, as soon as you start going into, you know, this is the world of 1997, Manhattan is behind prison walls, then you're going to start looking back on it and go, ha, 1997 was nothing like that. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, 2020 almost is. Um, and it's quite funny that... that in 1927 you can always imagine this is what people from 1927 would think that life in 2020 would be like um they're not far off though <laughs> i mean they are very far they're, right okay so let me get this right they're not far off in terms of um oh we we have video phones um that was something that i you know i i you know the, they had video phone um and you know the exploitation of the the working class and the and the rich getting richer you know that's very very much you know <laughs> accurate yes but I'm, I'm i'm talking you know i'm speaking about how like the way the cities look and you know these the kind of like this perfect utopia obviously it's not a perfect utopia but the way the, the, yeah. the, the top you know the the above above ground is perceived as this perfect utopia um yeah the, the film is is just incredible um so i i have a habit of doing silly things when i'm watching when i'm you know doing things for the podcast so i you i have did too the, much time in your hands <laughs> i really don't not anymore 
um, which makes this all this more remarkable that I actually managed to fit this in. Um, so I, I watched the the you know the two and a half hour version that that we're talking about, um, and then I you know I had some time to kill, and I, I I've had this version, um, the Giorgio Morador version of Metropolis um, that came out in nineteen eighty four. I've I've had it for for a good while on my just on my hard drive, and I've just obviously never got round to watching it because I wanted to watch the pure version first. Um, so this version is about 18 minutes long, uh, roughly about that. And because of that, it's, you know, it's the, the frame rate is kind of slightly sped up. And obviously it has, you know, because of when it came out in 1984, it has a number of sequences missing um, from from this version, from the 150-minute version. Um, Morador, uh, he added, uh, like, colour to the film. Or, you know, actually, he kind of tinted the image with different colors um, there are new intertitles you know there are added sound effects um like the you know there's like the sound of water being kind of when when the water's kind of rushing through the city you know you hear the sound of water yeah and um he added his own uh, contemporary soundtrack um so yeah so when i say contemporary soundtrack i mean there's bonnie tyler pat oh. benatar billy squire adam Ann, and Freddie Mercury on the soundtrack, um, and I did some reviews, and the the reviews for this, uh, the people hated it. I wonder um, why. I I can see where they're coming from because they may be seeing that if somebody's butchered a classic. Well, that's, you know, that's this... that was me being sarcastic. Yeah, so I I can see why people didn't like it because you know it's this kind of butchering of a classic, but. I really, really enjoyed it. I really, really did. Um, you know, there's a sequence where Machine Maria, you know, she's been a kind of her evil self. And then the Bonnie Tyler's song, uh, there's a song uh, sung by Bonnie Tyler called uh, Here She Comes, and it starts playing. And it, it's just so perfectly captures the film and, and the, 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 the feeling that you're watching in that moment. Um, an interesting fact about this version um Giorgio Morador actually out outbid uh, for the rights of Metropolis. Um, he outbid uh, David Bowie, actually. Wow. Um, for for the for the rights of this, which is I saw that and I was like, wow, that's really cool. Um, I, I wonder I what think, David would have done with it. I think he would have done something similar. I I think because I think uh, Morador and Bowie both worked on. Um, Paul Schrader's Cat People, um, which came out in the eighties as well. Um, yeah, they both worked on Cat People, and I, you know, I, th- I, I kind of, I think Bowie was kind of doing the same kind of thing at that time, with you know the same kind of style of music that Mordor was doing. So I think they would have come up with something. He would have come up with something a little bit similar, maybe not the the contemporary soundtrack, but I think they're you know. It's it's good. It's a good what if. What if Bowie would have had Metropolis instead of Morador? Um, but I, I honestly I think why I like this version so much, and I I I love the original film, but I think why I like the, the the other version so much is because I just feel like Metropolis is this what kind of work that it feels like it's able to kind of transcend anything that's thrown at it. So you can chuck chuck in a 1980s soundtrack, and it will just it will work if it's done right. Um, there's to kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent. There's one of my um favorite bands. is a Swedish uh post rock metal 
prog band called Cult of Luna. And in 2013, they released an album called Vertical, which is inspired by, they said it's inspired by Metropolis. Um, and you listen to it and you could, I can totally see like a version of Metropolis being played while listening to this, you know, eardrum bleeding riff, you know, kind of heaviness that's being thrown at you. Almost like, you know, you can play Dark Side of the Moon with Wizard of Oz, you know, I can kind of see that same thing happening with that. I think that's because that's what the power of Metropolis does, you know, it and it has this such a massive influence and it's 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 so it's just so phenomenal and so um like like an almost like a Rosetta Stone you know what I mean? It's like the the starting point for so many things, and I think it is. That's why you know it's able to kind of transcend this idea of this is how you should watch the film. And I honestly thought about writing something about the film, but you know the film is you know ninety three years old, and I think everything that could be said for the film you know has been said. Mm-hmm. Um. And on that note, I, I honestly, like, I, I've i tried my best to kind of articulate my thoughts in a, in a coherent manner, except, you know, rather than just me, me repeating the words, it's phenomenal, it's phenomenal, it's phenomenal. Um, This is about as, this is about as probably as good as I can get. Um, So, yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I'm really, really glad to have kind of ticked this one off. Excellent. Cool. So yeah, I think you've kind of ticked all the all the sort of stuff that I, I wanted to talk about in terms of, of of how amazing this film is. And there's something that you said I'll I'll get back to it in a minute because um it it made me laugh because um it 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 is what inspired Fritz Lang to actually make the film. Um so yeah this was the first ever full feature sci-fi and one of the most daring projects of the silent era okay it was like we said it was sci-fi then but now the beginning revisiting it might it made me think of maybe a documentary of the working conditions in an amazon warehouse (laughs) so i'm just gonna yeah uh i'm glad you liked brigitte helm i thought she was incredible there's there's not enough uh adjectives and her probably to describe how how amazing her performance is i honestly find it quite amazing that you know when when i sat down and watched um passion of uh joan arc um earlier this year um obviously like a lot of was i know about the film is primarily through the performance of maria falconetti that's the one um uh, primarily through her performance yet you don't hear that kind of same uh rhetoric when it comes with metropolis and uh brigitte uh, helm do do you it doesn't you know what i mean like there's always you talk about passion of own of arc and then it's always talk about maria falconetti's performance yeah with metropolis it goes you talk about metropolis and then you talk about the visuals you don't talk about the performance because I think it's because the visuals were very, very much like so cutting edge for the time. It was, it. I don't want to say that it sort of overshadowed her performance, but it could have easily because I mean she was incredible, but the visuals were also like 
amazing and it was like nothing that has had ever been done before and uh, yeah I thought she was she was brilliant I really liked also the um, the performance of Alfred Abel he was the, the the father he was the owner of the city I found his acting quite great even by today's standards because he doesn't overact the way we we used to seeing actors in southern films he has this he's almost impassive but he has the face of a villain so the the natural less is more performance really works well in this instance even without dialogue or like hand gestures and i thought that was i thought that was brilliant of him but yeah um i have some facts on, on ricky to him um in terms of production that would it would yeah it's it's quite scary but first, let's uh, Gustav Krolik. Um, I think I don't want to say that he was the weakest link of of the of a chain of incredible incredible performance, but I felt at times that you could see his inexperience because Fritz Lang, fun fact, started shooting this with a different actor cast as young Freder, and then during the early days of shooting. Uh, Thea von Harbu, who is Lan's wife and the author of the novel on which the story is based, she noticed Gustav Krolik, um as being one of the extras um, who was cast as a worker. So when the rush, when the first rushes were unsatisfactory with the with the original um, actor being cast in the role in the role of young Freda, she urged Lang to let her let Frolic act. And uh, yeah, he just basically took it and ran away with it. And it was his first ever role. So yeah, I think he I think he did well under the circumstances. I think he did really, really well. No, I, I agree with you. I think he did. I think he did it. Well, I, like I said, I think he was excellent. I really did. Yeah, he's he's good. He's good. Um, I, I like that you picked up on like the insanity of the performance of Rodolf Kleinroger. I, I thought I thought he was like when you see him for the first time you think oh he looks a bit like Beethoven and then he's like a cross between a, a very insane Beethoven Frankenstein Adam and maybe Professor Moriarty I don't know I can't think of any other like mad genius in, in literature and film that could be as in, interesting and like important for for posterity I think his acting was insane enough to stir admiration. It was, and it was copied over and over and over again. I said maybe, maybe, maybe Doc Brown by Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future. Yeah, but that he was lovable. He was there was no there, there was nothing sinister about Doc Brown. Oh, that's, that's true. There was no yeah. But yeah, he, there was a lot of sinister. I mean, I know the backstory is that he fell in love with the, with this woman and she married the the big hot shot, and then she died. But I don't think that excuses him wanting to kill everybody. <laughs> it was I. I was really surprised about that. You know, kind of revelation. Almost, I wouldn't say revelation, but you know, that backstory. I was not expecting that backstory behind it. You know. I yeah. Was, I, it was really. I really. Yeah. Really. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to give a, sh a shout out to Fritz Rasp, who is the henchman in the hat. I thought he was very, very good, and I liked the way he played with his hat. And funnily enough, 
I think he seems to be the inspiration for the villains in our other film. Somewhat. He's called the Thin Man, isn't he? The Thin Man, yeah. Yeah, the Thin Man. So yeah, I think he's uh, he's he's definitely inspired many other villains wearing hats throughout the cinema history. <laughs> so yeah, I think what's there to say? Fritz Lang is a master at work. He, I thought, he, I mean, he's one of those directors that he had such vision and such a good understanding of the medium that is just mind blowing most of the stuff he's done. If you've not seen his first sound film, I think, I think it was his first sound film, um, M, 1931. Check it out. The way he uses sound is incredible. It's just, it's, it's just so well done. He, he just learns so quickly how to manipulate sound for the story. And yeah. He was a perfectionist and a visionary, and just like any man of genius, he was also slightly insane, I think, a bit like Kubrick. Um, his methods were, let's, let's say, raw. This was, of course, before all the health and safety rules and regulations became the norm on, on a film production. So I think we've discussed, we've touched slightly on it when we, we, we talked lack or lack of health and safety measures when we had our episode on Michael Curtiz. But here's a few things from this production that I think might not work well on, on a film set today. So for for the chase across the rooftops, uh, Brigitte Helms and Rudolf Kleinbrogge actually had to climb across the tops of the exterior sets and race on planks that were 25 feet above the ground. And then at the end, she, without the benefit of a stunt woman, she had to leap for the rope attached to the to the bell. Um, oh. And although mattresses were in place, the height would still make it quite dangerous. She caught the rope on the first try, and then she just kept hanging, <laughs> and then slid down, at, um, and uh, she basically hit it against the walls. She hit her body against the wall, and she was bruised, and of course she's sort of storm out the set in tears but that was not the only time she was in danger of losing her life um she recalled the experience of shooting the film in a contemporary interview saying that uh, quote the night shots lasted three weeks and even if they did lead to the greatest dramatic moments even if we did did follow fritz lang's direction directions as though in a trance enthusiastic and enraptured at the same time, I can't forget the incredible strain that they put us under. The work wasn't easy and the authenticity in the portrayal ended up testing our nerves now and then. For instance, it wasn't fun at all when Grot drags me by the hair to have me burned at the stake. Once I even fainted. During the transformation scene, Maria as the android is clamped in a kind of wooden armament and because of the shot the, because the shot took so long, I didn't get enough air. End quote. Also, for the burning at the stake scene, the real fire was used, and Brigitte Helms's dress caught fire. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Um, I'm seriously surprised that no one died during the making of this film. And I think, well, if they did, they just buried the, that information so deep that nobody would be able to, to say anything about it. 
Um, so yeah, the flooding um, underground scene took three weeks to shoot and Fritz Lang wanted to get the scene just right. So this had a huge impact on the health of the actors uh, as he kept the water at constantly low temperatures. For the explosion of the heart machine, Fritz Lang refused to use dummies as stand-ins. He insisted that would look phony, so extras were, were to be hooked to harness belts and thrown through smoke, steam and fire. So, yeah. And then during filming, he insisted that extras show pain, even though there were no close-ups. Fortunately for him, they were already in pain. So I think, yeah, it's just... Um, a lot of a lot of stuff a lot of this was done for real um the effect expert um eugene shuftan i think i don't know how to pronounce it he created sort of pioneering visuals among the effects that he used were miniatures of the city so i think they were they were full scale uh sets built but most of the like uh, full pan like um, shots were done with miniatures. A camera was put on a swing, and the a process called the shift down process, in which mirrors are used to create the illusion that actors are occupying the, the miniature set. So basically, they sort of put the they've used the like matte set, and then just overlapped. And then I think this technique was used in blackmail. Um, 19, uh, the Hitchcock film 1929. I don't know if you've seen that, but I'd recommend it. So, adjusted for inflation, the budget for this was, well, it was 5 million uh, um, Deutschmarks and it basically around 200 million dollars. So, that is quite a hefty budget. Yeah, just a, just a bit. Um, and yeah, so I think the production was, was one of those things that I think it took for over a year to film everything the way he wanted it to. And a fun fact, because I'm actually reading this book at the moment, um, writer David Foster Wallace, um, the writer of, of Infinite Jest, who was about 1100 pages long, I've not finished yet, um, wanted to make the fo uh, there's a photo of Fritz Lang directing this film. He wanted to make that photo um, as the cover of, of, of Infinite Jest. And this was due to how harsh the director was on his cast and crew, putting them in a physical, like, grueling shoot. And because this was basically one of the themes of, of the novel, and I think Metropolis is mentioned a few times. Of course, Wallace was denied permission to do so. Um, and then the book went on to be a great success and then he was quite upset that he wasn't able to do what he wanted. Had the publishers known that how successful the book would have been, they would have probably allowed Fritz Lang to be on the cover directing the Metropolis. And I just wanted to um, end up on, on a very interesting quote that I found of Fritz Lang's, which um, based on what you said is fits it's quite well we were talking about the Empire State build, building and like the, the idea of skyscrapers so in an interview Fritz Lang reported that and I quote 
The film was born from my first sight of the skyscrapers of New York in October 1924. So he had visited New York for the first time and remarked, quote, I looked into the streets, the glaring lights and the tall buildings, and there I conceived Metropolis. End quote. Describing his first impressions of the city, Lang said that the, the building seemed to be a vertical sail, scintillating and very light, a luxurious backdrop suspended in the dark sky to dazzle, distract and hypnotize. He added, the sight of New York alone should be enough to turn this beacon of beauty into the centre of a film. So yeah, you had, you had your, your idea quite well placed in terms of where, where he might have found inspiration because that's where he did. It was New York. I actually, I actually managed to, to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So yeah, it's quite a, quite a, an important film. I, I think one of the things that I would love to, to, I would love to, I would, I think that the special effects and the acting and everything like it was groundbreaking. I would, I would love to sort of travel through time and see this film for the first time and see it in 1927 and I see the people and the people's reactions to it. I think, yeah, I think it it's incredible what they've managed to achieve. I would love to go back in time and when it, when it actually premiered and see everyone's faces. Yeah, there, there, there is some, uh, there is something about Metropolis that's kind of makes it does make you think of being like, what would have that been like to have seen in nineteen twenty seven yeah. when or you you haven't had anything like that on screen before before exactly, and that's yeah. why I think it's one of the best films ever made, um, sci fi or not. I think yeah, there's there's something to be said about German expressionism and how how well it's been done in in, in this. By Fritz Lang, it's one of those yeah, great films, and I'm glad we got to we got the chance to talk about it. It re- it really honestly has me wanting to watch more Fritz Lang stuff. I've seen M, um, and I really I've heard I've heard amazing things about his uh, Die Nibelung. Is it? Uh, is that how Die you Nibelungen. say it? That's the one. I'm butchering German here, which is great. Um, the and then you got the testament of Doctor Mabuse. Mabuse, yeah. Um, and I think the other one that I've heard really like amazing things about, um, in his terms of his pre-war work, is um a film called Destiny. I don't think I've seen that one. Um, its uh, other title is uh Der Muder Todd. Um, oh, rings a bell. I'll have to check it out. I I I heard um because it came out. I think Eureka Entertainment did a Blu-ray release of that. Um, I think it was earlier this year. Um, that they released it, and I uh, I Peter Bradshaw did a review of it on on the Guardian, and it kind of has me going, oh, I I I'd really want to see that. So, um, yeah, and then he's got his post-war work, um, like The Big Heat and The Woman in the Window. Yeah, Scarlet Street. These are all films I've I know I've heard of, and I would really want to sit down and watch. Um, so yeah, no, I'm it 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 does have me wanting to watch more more Fritz Lang. Cool. So we're gonna move on. Um, 
we're gonna we're gonna go seventy one years later. I had to do a bit of mental math there. <laughs> um, so seventy one years uh, into 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 the nineteen nineties, uh, specifically nineteen ninety eight, um, for Alex Proyas's uh, Dark City. Uh, the synopsis is. A man struggles with memories of his past, including a wife he cannot remember, in a nightmarish world with no sun and wrung by beings with telekinetic powers who seek the souls of humans. Um, so that synopsis kind of gives away the plot a little bit, as the, you know the yeah. mystery of the film. I'm glad, um, I, I'm, I'm glad I did not read that before I watched the film. It, yeah, so it kind of yeah, that that's really really quite interesting. You say that because. We watched the director's cut because the theatrical cut, so the version that was released in the cinemas, um, actually had a narration over the uh, beginning uh, by Keith Sutherland doing a narration over the beginning, which pretty much explains the mystery. Um, and, you know, rightfully... It was removed so, for the director's cut. Yeah, so Proyas was, you know, did a director's cut and removed it because why would you have that? Um, and I, I was lucky enough to have seen the director's cut first. My friends were like, you know, you have to watch the director's cut first. So I'm glad that I did it for you. Um, so yeah, what, what did what did you think of, of Dark City? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to top Metropolis. Let's just start from there. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to follow up on Metropolis. Um, but given how much I love noir, I think it'd be fair to say I liked, I liked it. I like this film. Uh, I like William Hurt. I think he's he's in a very interesting performer. He does he he always there's there's I think there's an icy elegance to his delivery that it can make him into quite a mysterious bad guy and quite a sophisticated good guy. And here he's kind of a bit of both. I mean he's not a bad guy, but he's not a good guy either. I found the story quite interesting. There's yeah, there's a bit of philosophy, there's psychology in it. You know, the the the, the eternal question what makes us humans? It's just been yeah, it's been written about for so long, so many times in so many ways. And I don't know. I was the the ending was one of those things that I was not really sold on and I think I kind of expected that sort of ending with the beginning because the beginning starts very very strongly and it would be virtually impossible to continue in that same way um yeah it was it was kind of difficult to maintain the the same level of of intrigue and mystery and top it up because it starts very very strongly and you're like whoa what's going on it it I'm really glad that I watched the director's cut because it's 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 it just adds a lot of mystery to it and by the time that the mystery becomes more like less mystery and just revealed you kind of end up wanting more of of questions and less of of explosions which is what happens well, it it's not it's not you know the, the dark city. I mean, it it can't just be questions, questions, questions for a hundred minutes. You know, it it isn't I'm, an episode yeah. of it. It is it isn't an episode or a season of Lost. You know, like you have to have some kind of payoff. Yeah. <laughs> 
when you say the ending, like, what did you mean? Which which bit are you referring to? The bit where, you know, it's revealed it's a thing in space, like, just the city in space? Or are you referring to the the reason why these beings are here, like... bit both. I mean, I like the idea of stolen memories, and I, I like the sort of... The, the idea of the film about these alien creatures coming up and jumbling our memories up to see what happens when one lives without one's history and one's past and I just I don't know the concept of having one's history erased I think has been theorized and and discussed I mean what's the what's the proof that we the world has you know I think there's like last Thursdayism or something there's there's been theories about this going on for ages I think this film could be a good precursor to The Matrix, but I think the the, the Matrix has has the more daring and and the better idea. And well, this film came this film came out a year before The Matrix. Yes, that's why I said precursor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like the film. I liked the film. I like films that raise the questions of you know what is real. What if the past were in the past? Uh, what if we had implanted memories that, because we can't really prove we can't go back into the past. What if the whole existence is a simulation, you know? And I think, yeah, it, it yeah, it, it owes a great debt to um, Jean Baudrillard's book, Simulacrum and Simulation. Um, I, yeah, I think I liked it. It was it was a good, interesting concept. Um, but yeah, I I it was well, really really well made. I like the dark noirish quality of it, but. I just, I think I was kind of hoping for something more, at the end, something more meaningful about memory, something with reality, forgetfulness. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it had quite a few similarities with Metropolis and I really enjoyed that, especially the, the bad guys being thin men, thin bald men with long, with big wide brim hats, all dressed in black. So yeah, that was that was quite interesting visually. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. No, that that yeah, this 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 kind of make you know, it makes me happy. Um, so that Dark City for for me, it's it's always it's always been a film that for for me, and my friends, um, you know, my late teens, early twenties, it was always kind of spoken in, you know, like have you seen Dark City? You know. <laughs> because like it was one of those films that you could never find on DVD, um, you know, it was, it was always out of print, and when you could find a copy, you know, on eBay or something, it was always stupidly expensive. Um, and this is you know before the the Blu-ray transfer came out, and you know it was obviously widely available. Um, you know, it for us, for me and my mates, it always it was always a, this cult film for us. You know, like it was our secret that it existed and we, you know we got to kind of share it with everyone else yeah just out of um, curiosity how well it, i didn't actually look at it but how did it do at, at the box office i didn't actually look this up i'm gonna i'm a quick quick thing um because uh, it just it, it's fun i mean i'm not a big massive um sci-fi fan um so it basically yeah just um was fell under the radar on this one so um, it, I wasn't familiar with the with the director either, so it was kind of new territory for me altogether. So its budget was, I think, was around twenty seven million, um, and it made 
and it made 27 million back in the box office so we just but broke it was, even but it was released this is quite interesting this is it was released um end of february 1998 um across the us and it opening weekend it it, it, came, it was placed fourth um it grossed 5.5 million its opening weekend which is actually not too bad for in february um the only problem it had was that the previous december 1997 titanic came out of course and Which titanic was, yeah yeah that same weekend so put this in perspective titanic that same weekend we're talking three months after its release um titanic was still making 19.6 million in the u.s box office three months after you have, release you have to think about yeah also that it was it was probably not released at the same time in in other countries so the titanic thing had a ripple effect yeah. And people kept coming back to see it. So, yeah, like you said, th three months after it was released, it was still the hardest ticket in town. Yeah, so, I mean, it it, 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 I mean, it, it just barely made it back its budget. But I know it's like one of these films that, you know, the DVD was, you know, out of print. And the reason that is is because everybody bought a copy kind of thing. And, you know, it's it, it made back some of its budget on video release and stuff. It's one of those kind of films. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah uh you know for, for 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 you know for me and my mates like we you know we knew this film came up before the matrix and it was all like oh this film did what the matrix did but a year before you know and it was always quite cool to us that you know it had the same the same kind of plot almost you know that there's you know a guy that's got special abilities there's a world he doesn't know about and he's awakening to it and he changes it using special powers um and you know us being in our teens we weren't really kind of aware <laughs> of the grander philosophical questions of the two um yeah. we were just like it's a cool sci-fi film um and uh, the, the the main drawing point for us was it was directed by alex proyas and written by alex proyas who wrote and directed um the crow um which uh have you seen the crow no i know oh, of okay. it is it the is it the film on on is it was it unfinished so yeah so the crow we're gonna do a bit of a history lesson here folks so the crow is in my opinion one of the greatest gothic superhero movies ever um and it's also one of the best uh, uh comic book adaptations ever has one of the greatest soundtracks ever to be released it um yeah so the the crow uh starred uh bruce lee's son brandon lee and they shot a sequence uh towards the end of the film um they shot i think it was about nine eighty like 90 percent of the film and they just kind of had you know the, a few pickup shots and the finale to shoot so the finale was shot this is a, a comparison. There's a lot of influence in Proyas' work with Metropolis, but the finale of The Crow is shot on top of a cathedral. Um, and the so they had um, s some prop guns, um, and one of which had an actual, like, it. if I remember rightly, um, the blank didn't come out of the, 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 the barrel properly. And then what happened was the um like like it was like a yeah it was like the blank didn't come out properly it was kind of left in there and then when they fired off the next one 
it then became you know a bullet pretty much oh. um and it you know it it shot it shot brandon lee um and you know he 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 died um and then you know they were kind of left with what we're going to do now with the film um so they kind of did some reworking of the script a little bit they did some kind of reworking of the flashback sequences and um they used uh, Lee stunt double was a guy called Chad Stileski um who people will know as the uh, uh director of the John Wick series um he was the used as like a stand-in and a you know like a CGI was kind of used to digitally superimpose Brandon Lee's face so um yeah no it it it's a really it's like this amazing film about reincarnation the crow is really really good it's about reincarnation and kind of doing right by your loved one after you're dead and coming back and you know getting revenge almost and then you know brandon lee kind of dies on the roof and of, of this cathedral and yeah so there's a lot of similarities between the crow um uh, Dark City and Metropolis just purely through aesthetics and there's a lot of gothic stuff that's in um, The Crow which is kind of then translated over from Dark City where you know see the darkness you know the film noir element to it um, I thoroughly recommend The Crow um, I think you would love it not just because it's a legit really good film it's one of the best kind of um, films to come out after Tim Burton's Batman um but it you know it had the soundtrack and it had the cure jesus and the merry chain raging against the machine um nine inch nails did a song uh stone temple pilots are on the soundtrack pantera are on the soundtrack um it's just an excellent excellent soundtrack um so i thoroughly thoroughly recommend the crow anyway so that's me going off a little bit on the crow um and i think like i said that the i love i love dark city you know because even now, like, through the internet, you know, like, every, it became increasingly apparent that quite a lot of people have seen Dark City. But still for me now, it's like, oh, you haven't seen Dark City. You need to see it. It's really, really good. Um, and, and, a, and a person who also thought this, you know, at the time was Roger Ebert, um, who declared it the best film of 1998, believe it or not. Mm. Um, he's, he said that the film... Uh, was, and I quote, a film so original and exciting it stirred my imagination like Metropolis and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it is that kind of imagination and that's in, in Dark City which, you know, kind of really captures me. And I, by the sounds of it, it captured, it captured you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. did enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoy the story and I enjoy Rufus Sewell's performance was great. Yeah, I mean, he does his he does the blank slate thing quite well. Yeah, you know, kind of recovering the memories, and then but then you kind of think about it, and he he kind of ends up kind of paling comparison with Keanu Reeves, who did the same thing a year later. Um, I think Jennifer Connelly is just so amazingly beautiful. <laughs> she, I, I don't think she needs to do anything. She just has to just just be there. Yeah, she's she's completely stunning, I and did... she kind of fits into this aesthetic of the world. I didn't find her performance particularly great, but she is no. just yeah, she she just looks the part. She's beautiful and that's all she needs to do. 
Yeah, there was a term uh, coined by a female film critic. I can't remember her name. Um, no, I can't remember her name. But it's a term called lamping, which is where if you can substitute a female character for a lamp, it's not <laughs> a female character. It's not a character, you know. It, it's yeah. just... You can't... I, I tried... I watched it and I was sat there and I thought you can't... She does... She actually does some stuff, so it's not like you can replace her with a lamp, so... It's not a total loss, and plus she looks amazing, and she, you know, her kind of her whole look kind of fits in with this film noir thing that the, the you know, the film's yeah. going for. But she's um, had better roles, I think. She's had much oh yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, the the strangers, as they're called, or the aliens, um, uh, I think are, are so really creepy and unsettling. Um, Richard O'Brien, um, which people would know from from Rocky Horror Picture Show in particular, you know, he kind of just has this weird look about him. And then when you learn yes, that they're yes. pretty much possessed corpses, it just adds another layer of creepiness to it, especially yeah. with the kid. Like, oh. I know that was that was very creepy. That was um, truly. And the, the the chattering of the teeth as well is is yeah. Um, I think uh, Keith Sutherland I thought was really really good as Dr. Schreiber I almost didn't recognise him yeah it's not really a performance you expect to see from him is it like yeah. um, you know it, people think of Keith Sutherland and you think of Lost Boys or, yeah. or uh, Flatliners or Jack Bauer you know it's you don't think of this kind of quite weird performance he's giving um, and then William Hurt I think he's really really good as Detective Bumstead I really do and I always get upset when he dies. <laughs> I know. Um, I you kind of expect it, but not really. And yeah, it it it, it is sad. Because I think his story kind of thing. I think I thought his story was always like if anyone deserved to live, you know, and to get some kind of closure from it, it, it would was be him. him. Like I know the main story is you know of John Murdoch and 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 Emma, but I honestly like. He's the one living in this world, probably experiencing more of it than those two in terms of, you know, seeing the effects on other people. And I, you know, I think I think he kind of deserved to see the sunlight, you know, more than anyone else. I know. That's why I was I was kind of disappointed because after he died, you kind of go like, well, he's going to be like the, the, you know, hero, the last man standing. He has the power. He always had the power all along. And that's kind of what disappointed me slightly with it. Because he was like, yeah, yeah, he only, he only, he could do it. Only he could know how to do it. He, he knew how to do it, but he had to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I, I honestly, I do get what you mean. Like it kind of links in with, um, I think that maybe like the, the one of the main influences, the you know, influences on the film is um, uh, Akira, uh, Katsush- uh, Katsushiro's Otomo's Akira from 1988, um, one of the great animated films ever, um, where it's, there's a lot, there's a like a psychic battle going on. Where it's the same kind of thing that Rufus Sewell and, and, and Richard O'Brien have. And it kinda it kinda links in with that kind of ultimate power in the mind and you know Yeah, yeah. The effect it kinda has on on people. And 
I think the film does get a little bit silly at that point where they're kind of just, you know, forehead yeah. eyes thing going on. Yeah. But I... That's what I, I mean. I'm so on board at that point, I don't really <laughs> mind. Uh, <laughs> I wanted more philosophy. I wanted less explosion. But that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, that there's a lot of ideas in there which I think could really only come from a film of this nature from 1998. You can't. I don't think you see a film of this budget, you know, mid-sized budget science fiction film, kind of they're doing the same thing. I don't think there are any mid-sized budget science fiction films out now. You know that have been out the last ten years. I, you know, you, you think of what a science fiction film that's going to tackle big themes like this, and you're talking like indie budgets, you know? Yeah. Um, and not containing like a really good decent cast which is what this has this has a really really good cast so you think of usually you think of indie films that may have like one or two big actors and then the rest is just you know indie actors um, for some reason I'm thinking of, of um, Claire Denis uh, High Life which had Robert Pattinson in it um, and uh, Juliette Binoche um, but even then like you know they're they're more kind of independent actors yeah maybe not robert pattinson but they might you know lean, leaning towards that area of things than, than they are kind of big budget ideas and you know with the big budget science fiction films i mean chris nolan maybe i mean inception did that have any big ideas it, it did maybe. this made me think a bit of inception because it has to it, it deals with again memory and loss and and sort of re also like designing new worlds and yeah, yeah but but but, it, but inception and but inception didn't have you know the questions of the nature of the human soul what it means to be human the importance of individualism breaking free no, from predetermined it was, quite, it was much more corporate than that wasn't it yeah well, so, yeah that's what i mean like that's what i mean like these sci- science fiction films now they they kind of either you got the indie ones which have the big ideas but they don't have the budget to do anything with them yeah. or you have the big budget ones that don't really have the ideas in there because no one will go and see a big budget idea science fiction film anymore um True. i think maybe the last the last big one it was i was going to say avatar but i don't think that has any big ideas apart from global warming is bad um maybe maybe the matrix yeah and look and the, how and that the se- changed the, the world <laughs> i mean it did culturally the matrix did culturally change you know i was referring to about- avatar oh you're referring to avatar okay i i actually like avatar but you know um when 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 the sequels come out in 2028 <laughs> when when i'm pushing my 40s then you know we're going to be sat there and go, Avatar 2 was amazing. Uh, yeah, I doubt it. No, um, actually, no, uh, come to think of it, I've just looked over at my bookcase. Um, Blade Runner 2049. That's probably the last one I can think of. And that had a massive budget of like $160 million, like financed from various different companies and and uh, pro- um, distributed by uh, Warner Brothers. And that made no money back. Like literally next to no money back. Um, it bombed in the cinema. Like nobody saw it in the cinema, which is a complete and utter travesty. Because Denis I mean, Villeneuve, you have to see it in cinema. I went to see it in cinema. I saw it three times. I couldn't get away from it. I was 
so I didn't enraptured really by like it. it. But we're, we're we're diverting our conversation. <laughs> we are, but no. So basically, the end the end of what I'm trying to get at is like these big ideas. I mean, they you don't really see them nowadays. I think 1998 and the late 90s is kind of like this time for them, where studios were like, yeah, here's 30 million dollars to make you know some a film that's got this in it. You know, like it it it's it's quite a it's a world that we don't live in anymore. <laughs> Um, and like you like you said, like the, the the iconography in this film is you know it's just you got film noir, you got sci fi ideas, you got some creepy horror stuff going on, um, and I th- I really do think Dark City does does a very good job at kind of grappling with it. Um, so like the mystery itself, I mean, how how soon did you call it? Was there was there a point where it kind of clicked for you and like at the end were you I mean you did kind of say you weren't really satisfied with the you weren't blown away by the ending well, but were you satisfied I mean, was, with the ending? No, yeah. What I mean, I I expected. I was kind of hoping for a darker ending, something that just takes hope away from the whole equation. Um, but I. You know, there was the idea, you know, I, I kind of figured out there was the, I mean, you know, you see the aliens coming out of their brains as soon as one of the guys dies. So you kind of go like, okay, so there's alien doing something. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was just expecting something, something, a, a bigger, a bigger twist perhaps. Okay, I'm I, I'm really intrigued as to know what kind of twist you are. I don't know. For. I was kind of hoping that she might be behind the behind everything. Because at one point I was wondering, like, why would why would the why would she not live in a different life every day? But then it was explained by the fact that he was under a microscope and he everyone connected to him directly had to live the same way um so including the detective because they were kind of sort of recreating a murder mystery and waiting to see how people would react to it um but yeah i don't know if i could have guessed it but yeah was there a point that it kind of clicked for you like i'm really intrigued to know clicked like what like what what would have clicked i don't know like oh my god so um the did it kind of happen organically or did you call it before it happened i'm not sure exactly what what i was supposed to have called it and i mean you knew you knew the 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 bad guys were the the guys in in the white brim hats i didn't i mean did, i wouldn't did you think did you think that they were aliens get... or sorry did you think did you did you kind of twig that they were aliens or did you twig? I didn't no unless until I saw the guy. Uh, I think it was the the scene where he gets whacked over the head and then the the stuff starts to come out. Yeah. From his head, that's kind of like well, yeah, okay, that's not human. Um, but their reasoning, I mean, the reason behind it all, like to find out what the soul and how their soul works and how they function and what makes people human. Um, I think that was kind of quite early on revealed. 
But before then, I don't know if I could have... I was trying to sort of piece everything together because the first half was quite good in terms of building up the mystery. Yeah, no, that, honestly, that, that, that kind of makes me happy that you'd be able to kind of just let the film kind of do its thing and you're not yeah, sat there going... Yeah. You're not I don't, sat there I don't like doing... To do, I don't like to start doing, like, a, 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 you know second guess what's about to happen and and make assumption as to who's done what and who's behind it all and whatnot i just like to sort of pay attention and not think of what's the story yeah just kind of let it come and just yeah. let it go yeah kind of thing yeah no 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 yeah that's that's really cool yeah i yeah so i'm i'm really happy we got to talk about dark city and kind of like having it next to metropolis is quite cool as well because you kind of like there's lots of like the, the questions that were kind of they're asking in in dark city or you know also kind of being asked in in metropolis um yeah. and you know the visual similarities are so striking as well but i mean in dark city as well you've got you know you've got some terry gilliam's brazil in there um there's jean-pierre Jeunet's uh, city of lost children i already spoke about akira um you know that there's it's kind of like this melting pot of ideas and um like influences and and i you just don't i just don't see films like this anymore um i agree may, may, i think that maybe, sometimes they get yeah they get you know too produced out of their you know within an inch of their lives I think maybe the closest you get is like a Netflix TV series or a HBO TV series. Like that's the closest you'll kind of get to something like this. Like, but that, you know, that would be then stretched across 10 one hour episodes or, you know what I mean? It wouldn't yeah. be condensed yeah. into an hour and into a hundred minute film. So, um, there's, there's, there's this kind of this question of, there's a lost art almost, you know, of making a film like this in a hundred minutes instead of ten one hour episodes. Um, but I, I mean? think I think the the way we started to consume films and and cinema and and theater and all that has changed dramatically in the last six months or so. So I think people will invest more in 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 ten hour episodes on Netflix rather than in a, a full feature film. I mean, I think they they have been. It's not just over the last six months. I think it's been the last like six years. Um, yeah, habits yeah. habits have changed, um, and it, it it'd be really interesting kind of to see. I mean, linking this in with like the big budget sci fi thing, but it'd be really interesting to see how Tenet does, and to see what the feedback is with that. Um, I really want I, to see that in cinema. I really do. Yeah, I really really do, but I really don't think I will. Um, you know purely for my own safety um no so I, I, i'd rather i'm i'm happy to go in and wear a mask for three hours okay all right i okay. i miss the cinema like something awful no i i do as well i do as well and i think maybe you're going to go see like tenet as like the first cinema experience for you know however many months might be the way to do it you know, if yeah. you're gonna do it, go big. And I think yeah, you know, yeah, nobody does. Yeah. Nobody go does big, big like Nolan. <laughs> go big or go home. Um, yeah. Okay. So I think I think we're kind of wrapping up a little bit here. So um, that's that's kind of us done with Metropolis and Dark City and and the science fiction angle. Cool. Um, cool. That was great. Think, 
I don't think we're touching on science fiction like as a, as an episode like for for yeah not for a while so this yeah the, um... i think that i think this one was kind of a big one because you know we had the we had the, the masterpiece that is metropolis and we had a really good film um that is dark city so what have we got on for next week um so next week uh i think probably melodrama is the best way to describe um my favorite s- certainly one of the films i think the other film is is goes into melodramatic uh melod- goes into goes into quite melodrama some uh, uh, points and has a lot of um what's the word like similarities maybe are lying underneath so the the two films are um so the first one is now voyager from 1942 directed by irvin rapper uh starring betty davis paul henreid and claude rains um it's betty davis time again yeah um that's not me complaining i'm honestly really happy to see more betty davis so yeah i think um, i think this is one of her best roles ever i've heard i've heard I lots really of things can't about wait to, i really can't wait <laughs> and and we are watching this with um star 80 from 1983 directed by bob fossey so it's a, the second Bob Fosse film oh, uh, we've crap. mostly got on here. Um, <laughs> starring Mariel uh, Hemingway, Eric Roberts, and Cliff Robertson. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Eric, Eric Roberts is, is, is really fucking good. Um, he should have got an Oscar for, for his performance. But we'll I don't think I've that. ever seen Eric Roberts acting very, very well in a film. I mean... I've seen in him her- in lots of beep films. I've seen him in lots of like, you know, Hallmark type. Films. Yeah, I know what you mean. He's in um, he's in Inherent Vice, um, and he's really good in that. He plays um, what's his name, Mickey. Oh, oh. yeah. Hang on, I got it here. My uh, Mickey Wolfman. He plays the you know the guy that Doc is looking for, Mickey Wolfman. Yes. Yes. It was it is he's the Jew that wants to become a Nazi or something like that if I remember <laughs> rightly. Uh Inherent Vice is such a great film so yeah. I love Inherent Vice. I love it. Great. So film. that that's next week it would be now Voyager and Star 80 not Inherent Vice. Um <laughs> Yes. So I can I can see us doing an episode on Paul Thomas Anderson just solely Paul Thomas Anderson at one point. Yes. Um because we always talk about there will be blood. Um so yeah that's that's us done for for this week um so danny where can we find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at kino joan and my website is kinojohn.co.uk and you can find me on the internet on my twitter at nick s chandler my website is superatomovision.com and my letterbox is uh, nicholas chandler so just search for me on there you should be able to find me and our gmail podcast gmail is kinotomic at gmail.com and our Twitter is at Keenotomic. Uh, drop us a follow on there, and obviously just give us a um, like subscribe rating on on iTunes. Um, I think that's the only one that does it. Rating review on iTunes, and you know spread the word with your friends that you know about us. It'd be nice. Uh, we're cool. getting close to we're getting close to a really good um, like landmark in terms of downloads. Um, so it'd be really really cool to hit that uh, over the next couple uh, week or so. Um, so it is a thank you and a goodbye from, from me and a thank you and a goodbye from me